This event was recorded at the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you for coming out on this rainy afternoon. Um, I have to thank the Booker Prize for sponsoring this event and for a writer's retreat whose name is Nick. Somebody here? Yes. Hawthorne in Castle. I had the little piece of paper, but somehow or other I can't find it now. <laughs> thank you so much. So it's a great honor to introduce Rachel today. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, the Mars Room has been long-listed for the Man Booker this year, so a big <laughs> congratulations for that. Thank you. The Daily Telegraph has called it an unforgettable novel. I agree. It's been wonderful to be reading her book. And the New York Times said, more knowing about prison life than Orange is the New Black, powerful. Rachel Kushner's debut novel, Telex from Cuba, was finalist for the 2008 National Book Award. Her following book, The Flamethrowers, was also a finalist for the National Book Award. She's also worked as a journalist and was an editor for those wonderful magazines, Grand Street and Bomb. And she is a Guggenheim Fellow. So just to tell you, for those of you who haven't read the book, and there will be uh, books available, which Rachel will sign, in this little tent right here after um, this presentation. So don't go to the uh, bookstore that's in Charlotte Square, but go right here. Um, so the book is about Rami Hall, who is the mother of a seven-year-old son, Jackson, who is at the start of two consecutive life sentences plus six years. And I have to say the plus six years is something that really haunts me in this book because it's the plus six years for child neglect. So how can you have two life sentences plus six years? The, the novel is full of all this kind of irony all the time, bright, heartbreaking irony. And Rami is at Stansville Woman's Correctional Facility, and the title, The Mars Room, refers to the strip club where Rami once gave lap dances for a living. I don't know, do you call her Rami or Romy? Or who um, knows? I've said Romy <laughs> to be consistent, but, you know, okay. it's... Um, Romy. It's okay. Okay. And her seven-year-old son is in the care of her mother. The Mars Room is a novel full of irony, humor, and unsentimentality. It is highly critical of the U.S. prison culture. And um, I highly recommend that you get the book if you haven't got it yet. So how about if we begin with a reading? Oh, yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out in the pouring rain. Which... <laughs> It's like we're all camping together. <laughs> I hope the rain slap stays good on this building. All right. Um, I was going to just read from the, very, from the very first few pages of my book. All right. Can you hear me all right? All right. Chain night happens once a week on Thursdays. Once a week, the defining moment for 60 women takes place. For some of the 60, that defining moment happens over and over. For them, it is routine. For me, it happened once. I was woken at 2 a.m. and shackled and counted. Romy Leslie Hall, inmate W314159, and lined up with the others for an all-night ride up the valley. As our bus exited the jail perimeter, I glued myself to the mesh-reinforced window to try to see the world. There wasn't much to look at underpasses and on-ramps, dark, deserted boulevards. No one was on the street. We were passing through a moment in the night so remote that traffic lights had ceased to go from green to red and merely blinked a constant yellow. Another car came alongside. It had no lights. It surged past the bus, a dark thing with demonic energy. There was a girl on my unit in county jail who got life for nothing but driving. She wasn't the shooter, she told anyone who'd listen. She wasn't the shooter, all she did was drive the car. That was it. 
They'd used license plate reader technology. They had it on video surveillance. What they had was an image of the car at night moving along a street, first with lights on, then with lights off. If the driver cuts the lights, that is premeditation. If the driver cuts the lights, it's murder. They were moving us at that hour for a reason, for many reasons. If they could have shot us to the prison in a capsule, they would have. Anything to shield the regular people from having to look at us, a crew of cuffed and chained women on a sheriff's department bus. Some of the younger ones were whimpering and sniffling as we pulled onto the highway. There was a girl in a cage who looked about eight months pregnant, her belly so large they had to get an extra length of waist chain to shackle her hands to her sides. She hiccuped and shook, her face a mess of tears. They had her in the cage on account of her age to protect her from the rest of us. She was 15. A woman up ahead turned toward the crying girl in the cage and hissed like she was spraying ant killer. When that didn't work, she yelled, Shut the hell up! Dang! the person across from me said. I'm from San Francisco, and a trans person to me is nothing new, but this one looked truly like a man, shoulders as broad as the aisle and a jawline beard. I assumed she was from the daddy tank at County, where they put the butches. This was Conan, who I later got to know. Dang, I mean, it's a kid. Let her cry. The woman told Conan to shut up, and then they were arguing, and the cops intervened. Certain women in jail and prison make rules for everyone else, and the woman insisting on quiet was one of those. If you follow their rules, they make more rules. You have to fight people, or you end up with nothing. I had learned already not to cry. Two years earlier, when I was arrested, I cried uncontrollably. My life was over, and I knew it was over. It was my first night in jail, and I kept hoping the dreamlike state of my situation would break, that I would wake up from it. I kept on not waking up into anything different from a piss-smelling mattress and slamming doors, shouting lunatics and alarms. The girl in the cell with me, who was not a lunatic, shook me roughly to get my attention. I looked up. She turned around and lifted her jail shirt to show me her low back tattoo. It said, shut the fuck up. It worked on me. I stopped crying. It was a gentle moment with my cellmate in county. She wanted to help me. It's not everyone who can shut the fuck up, and although I tried, I was not my cellmate, who I later considered a kind of saint, not for the tattoo, but the loyalty to the mandate. Uh, that's it for that section. Thank you. Thanks. So I guess to open uh, for questions, can you tell us a little bit about the exploration that you had to take in order to understand, you know, how the Mars room worked and what went on there as well as the prison life, the years that went into this exploration oh. of getting, I don't want to say research. <laughs> Do you mean the Mars room, the club, or the Mars room, the novel? The club. Sorry. Oh, yeah. No one's ever asked me that question. <laughs> um, maybe I'll skip no. that question, but just with the proviso that I know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the prison then. <laughs> uh, well, I was just thinking of something I could share with the audience from that section I read, um, which I have never shared, but that um, that... You know, novels are a complicated engagement with the unconscious and the imagination and can bring in, I think, like a mythical harnessing of truth that isn't necessarily literal truth, obviously. It's a novel. That said, this novel in certain ways is intensely personal for me, um, partly because I grew up with some people who ended up going to prison. And I think that that experience marked me quite profoundly. And I hadn't really reviewed it or ruminated deeply into what any of it meant until I went to write this book. 
Um, and uh, in my adult life, I have a very good friend who served time only in a county jail. But um, this experience of crying uncontrollably and then having her cellmate shake her and then turn around and like expose the tattoo uh, is real. And the tattoo said, shut the fuck up on her lower back. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought about that woman, even though I never met her. And she became for me uh, a symbol of a type of fortitude that I have really only found among the people in my life growing up and the people that I've met uh, who are serving long sentences in prison, um, a type of fortitude that is quite rare and is a preservation of dignity against, I don't know how to put it, like a type of dignity that you find in people who are willing to win by being ready to forfeit everything, um, if, if you follow me on that. And it's something that you find among people in prison because so many of their rights have been taken away and their capacity to present themselves by like, you know, normal identity significations, like what the sociologist Irving Goffman would call your identity kit. You can't do your hair a certain way, you don't have access to makeup, you can't wear clothes, you don't have a place in the society that you're constantly signaling of who you are. You only have your personality and your ability to say, you know, this is where this stops. Your ability to control me stops at the point where I have something in me that is a type of fortitude. Like, for instance, a refusal to cry when you put me in a position where that's absolutely expected of me because uh, this is a space of retribution. Um, but sorry, <laughs> I guess the question was about how I embarked on um, learning about prison to mm -hmm. write the book. Um, certain aspects of the book maybe were the result of having thought about and been interested in prisons for a very long time. Uh, I have an aunt who's a visual artist, Dee Dee Halleck, who had taught filmmaking uh, in a prison in the 60s and then made a documentary about prisons in the 90s. And when I would stay at her house, she subscribed to things like Prison Life magazine and was always involved. She's friends with Mumia Abu-Jamal. And so I was like aware of this struggle and an idea about resistance against people who are told that what they have to do in the wake of having committed a crime is go and spend very long periods of time in a cage. And I think, which isn't to say that I'm fundamentally critical of it or, the, or that the book is about that, criticism, but I was aware that I should maybe ask questions about what the nature of justice is, what the nature of the law is, and why is American bourgeois society structured and organized in such a way that middle class people don't really ever have to think about this whole kind of penal net that overlays the society and can be witnessed if you start to look at who's going to court, who's being arraigned, who's in the jail that is walking distance from the court, and what are all those sheriff's department buses shuttling back and forth all day long between the two places? Um, I live in Los Angeles, which sends 60% of the people in state prisons in California to prison. So the majority of them come from my city, even though they are taken very far from their homes. Um, you know, they're taken sometimes 600, 800 miles. California's a very long state. Uh, it's an enormous place. We're the fifth largest world economy. And they, these people are put in industrial farmland far north. So I decided about six years ago that I wanted to learn everything I possibly could about the prison system in California. And I live walking distance from the courts. And uh, I have a cousin who's a public defender. And she said, just start watching arraignments. And you know, this is a public civic activity. Anyone is meant to witness these proceedings. And I think that in a way by seeing those events without having the legalese and the knowledge to know the intricacies of what was occurring, I could see other things, you know, watch people in the courtroom who've come to have a glimpse of their relative who's behind glass in what they call the fish tank, meeting with their public defender for the first time. Um, and then I got involved with a human rights organization based in California called Justice Now, who are very unusual in the sense that their leadership is comprised of people serving life sentences in prison. And they have offices in Oakland, they have lawyers who work for them, they have interns, they have an office staff. But the, the major decisions for the organization on their campaigns and their direction 
are made by people who are lifers. And uh, now I'm on an advisory board for Justice Now, but I started going into the prisons with them on their legal visits and documenting human rights abuses. And it was something somewhat separate from writing novels. Um, it was just something that I wanted to do in that moment in my life. But I think it would have been difficult to write the book without uh, those experiences, which isn't to say that by talking to people in prison, I utilized their stories and put them in the book. I really didn't. But the texture of the place and the way that I engage with people and some of the things that they tell me allowed me to really see the prison and also the kind of absurd institutional logic of the place. I mean, some of it, people who work in that environment or have been in prison who read the book know that it's real. But people who haven't are like, are you making this up? You know, some of the most real things I ended up toning down a bit because to my editor they just seemed too unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I just read, um, because of these ghastly fires in California that are historic, that the prisoners are being used as firefighters. They can sign up and they're paid a dollar an hour and two dollars a day and is saving the state of California 90 million dollars by using the prisoners. That's it's like a slave labor. Well, you know? that's true. They do have fire camps in California and they've had them for a long time. And um, that's a controversial thing because firefighters are people who put themselves at absolute mortal risk in doing mm -hmm. the jobs that they do. And people feel that, you know, it's not right to conscript anybody to a job like that that can have severe consequences. And there was a woman who died while fighting fires and a long article was written about it in the New York Times, which sort of alerted a lot of people that this is going on. Um, but from having talked to women in prison about it, I feel like there are complexities to it that maybe from the outside wouldn't be so obvious. And one of those is that um, a lot of people in prison would like to do that job, but are not eligible. Because you have to have a perfect disciplinary record. Your convictions have to be for nonviolent offenses, which only 10% of people in the state prison um, fall under that category. 90% have been convicted of what the state considers serious violent felony. So it's actually a privilege to be able to do that. Like, I actually would rather be, I think, learning about fighting fires than sitting in a prison cell doing nothing. And most people in prison do not work. There's a sort of perception that it's about conscripted labor and making people work. Do people see that movie 13th by Ava DuVernay? Anybody see that? Um, I, I think she meant well in making that film, but at least in California, um, and I feel like our state is kind of a bellwether for the direction that capitalism is going in the United States. Um, we spend the most money per prisoner on prisons. Prisons there are very expensive. And the majority of it is state funded. It does not make a profit. It I mean, states do need to produce revenue, but they don't make profits. And um, they do like a few, they do make some stuff in prison. But what they make is mostly stuff for prison. And in fact, a lot of it is stuff for prison industries. So it's this really bizarre tautology. Like you go in to see what they're making. And indeed, the prisoners, uh, like Jennifer said, are being, they're being paid, actually, a dollar an hour is quite good pay. Um, if you work in the wood shop in prison, you get paid what they also consider good pay, which is 22 cents an hour. But if you have restitution, which everybody does, that means 55% of your pay goes to the state of California for your room and board and to victims funds. So then you make about 11 cents an hour and about three quarters of that you end up paying in fees to the private subcontractors who handle the money system in prison. It's called JPay. So if you put money on someone's books in prison, most of it goes to administrative bureaucratic costs. So the people who are working in the wood shop, back to that, they are mostly, and I put this in the book as uh, there's a whole section about it, they make um, judges' benches, they make gavels, <laughs> they make uh, the, um, the, the gates for the defendants' quarters, um, they make judges' chairs, which then go next door to upholstery. And what they make is the furniture for the procedural apparatus in California that is shuttling people from court 
to jail, to court, to prison. Um, so and I, I went to another prison industry where they were making safety goggles for prison industry. And another place down the hall where they were making boots. And I said, are these boots for everybody in the prison? Because they're actually nice leather boots. And they said, no, these are just for people who work in prison <laughs> industries. <laughs> so there's this weird thing where there is making and producing, but it isn't like corporate profit making and producing. They're not actually producing any real stuff that leaves the prison. It's just sustaining this enterprise. Fascinating. Well, I'm from Mexico, and many of our drug traffickers get extradited to prison in the United States. And the reason that they hate to go to the United States is that they don't have conjugal rights. Right. In also, Mexico, they can't escape through a tunnel on a motorcycle, right? Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> but in Mexico, you know, uh, it's considered, you know, your right to be able to have conjugal rights. And a lot of people in, in Mexican prisons even marry complete strangers if they're lifers because perhaps they'll have a sexual partner. Yeah. And it's just, it's so interesting how in the United States... I don't know which side is more interesting, that you can or that you can't. Well, people but. do marry complete <laughs> strangers. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that does happen. Um, I have a friend, and this is the kind of detail, actually, that did um, end up in the book, but she, uh, she wanted me to put it in the book. Um, well, she was about to parole. In order to parole in California, you have to have proof. For the parole board to feel good about letting you out of prison, you have to have proof of uh, stable residence and gainful employment. Now, imagine being in prison. Also, as a woman being in prison many hundreds of miles from your home, chances are your family has, if not forgotten about you, neglected to visit you. And people don't really have regular contact anymore because they're so far from their community. And chances are they're from a really poor community. And in order to visit prison, you have to have money. You have to have a, a solid working car. You have to have money for a hotel. You have to have money to pay for food on, and gas on your way there. And then you have to have money for the vending machines, which are expensive. Because that's what really what visiting is about. You visit the vending machines with your family in the visiting room. Uh, so a lot of people have no contact with anyone once they've been in for a while. And then let's say you've been in for like 8 or 12 years and it's time for you to go the, before the parole board. How do you secure employment and a place to live if you are someone in society who has had all of your kind of um, ties to any kind of fabric cut? So this friend of mine, Teresa, ended up forming a pen pal relationship with a guy who'd written to a different woman in the prison. And um, she said to me, uh, Rachel, when I saw his handwriting, I knew that letter was worth a lot of money. She paid this other woman like $50 through bartering, like she gave her CD player. And I said, what was so valuable at the letter, about the letter? And she said, his handwriting was like a third graders, um, which is quite mean. But you know, in both cases, I mean, both people are trying to survive. It was this really lonely guy who wanted a wife, and his family was pressuring him to get married. And my friend needed somebody to go home to and considered him a victim, but really by victim she meant savior. And so this guy came to the prison to meet her, and he really liked her. She's quite a beautiful woman. And he tried to kiss her on the cheek at the end of the visit, and she told him that um, she'd gotten into trouble and wasn't allowed to receive a kiss in visiting, <laughs> which is a complete lie. And he said, well, why don't we just shake hands? So they shook <laughs> hands, and then he asked her to marry him by letter later, and she said yes. And so she paroled this guy that you know she didn't know um, in order to have a place to live and proof that, you know, because his family was going to support her. So that does happen. I mean, that's like a lucky story. If yeah. you're lucky, you could marry a stranger so that you'd parole. Yeah, fascinating. It didn't work out because then he just, he watched car racing on TV all day long. And um, at a certain point, she just was driven nuts and grabbed an ashtray and threw it at him. Did she kill him? No, she, I think he just got a really bad bump on his head. And then she left and ran out and then hitched a ride and ended up at a lesbian bar in the valley and then was living on skid row for a while i mean the things that people have to go through to survive are unbelievable but her stories are also quite funny and full of this vitality and i think it's this kind of like humor and resourcefulness in a way that i wanted to put into my novel and if i wasn't doing that successfully the book wasn't going to work because it isn't just immiseration, right? Mm -hmm. People do everything with style. Yeah. 
Well, let's go down the road of literature for a minute. So I'm very interested by this appearance of Thoreau, by the appearance of Ted Kaczynski, who's a kind of odd Thoreau type of character. In a way, yeah. In a way. And um, for maybe, for those of you who don't remember, um, he was the Unabomber. And, you know, he did have an actual philosophy and ideology of, of being against technology and the modern world and the building of roads. And obviously Thoreau shares, well, he shared it with Thoreau. And right. I would say that um, in a way, San Francisco, the, the destruction of San Francisco in the book also speaks to that. So that for me, I felt there was a dialogue between the Unibomber, Thoreau, your examination of San Francisco. And then, because of reading your book, I didn't know this, but uh, that Kaczynski was very, had a lot of compassion for animals in cages, which obviously the novel is about people in cages. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the inspiration of these people. And also, Rachel has... Uh, ap, ap, uh, quotes some of uh, the Unabomber's diaries directly in the novel, which is really fascinating to suddenly come across that and hear his voice in the middle of this. It's very special, that part oh, of thanks. the book. Yeah, um, well, a few different things. First, about San Francisco, I think it's, um, and I, I hadn't quite linked the transformation of San Francisco with. Thoreau and Kaczynski's critiques of the transformation of society due to its, due the technological destruction of life as both of them think they knew it. But, um, which isn't to say it's not valid, I mean, it's really interesting. For me, in a way, there are passages in the book about San Francisco because that's where the narrator is from. And she's kind of reviewing and reconstructing her childhood and adolescence in part because that's all she has, right? That her life experiences outside of prison have ceased. So what she can do then is review that material now that she's inside of prison. But for me, writing those sections, um, I came to feel that in a way, what literature, one of the things among the many things literature can do is to create um, and revive worlds that have disappeared entirely. And it's not so much about the fact that, oh, the tech industry has destroyed San Francisco because now the, the, only those who can afford to live there do and that, you know, the old working class places like that where I was raised in the Sunset District are gone. I mean, that's all true, but all of our pasts have been erased. So the world that you come from and the things that you remember that become more vivid in your mind over time and particularly through the act of writing, I think, memories can actually be conjured into view and you start to look at things that you didn't realize you even had access to. Through the process of writing, the place gets recreated and then literature is actually a repository for something that has been erased. Um, in terms of Thoreau and Kaczynski, I've always been interested in Thoreau, maybe because I'm American, uh, but I, I have this friend, the artist James Benning, who had made this project where he built exact identical replicas of Thoreau's cabin from Walden and Kaczynski's cabin from Montana. And they are on his property, which is uh, directly east of Bakersfield in the Central Valley in the Sierra Nevada. And I spend a lot of time there. And he's somebody with whom I discuss uh, art making and ethics and prison and the Central Valley in California. He's interested in the mechanics of the world in a similar way that I am. And at first I didn't really understand his project about Thoreau and Kaczynski. I, maybe partly because like when the Unabombers maybe even better know him than Kaczynski. To me he's just Ted. But um, <laughs> when that manifesto was published by the New York Times, a lot of people read it. I was a student at Berkeley, I believe, at the time, and he'd been a math professor there. And um, I think there were a lot of people on the left and anarchists who thought he was right and that it was really interesting. And I thought the manifesto was really hackneyed. And I wasn't very impressed with Kaczynski. And so I sort of thought, why are you putting him into dialogue with this incredibly exalted and interesting American thinker, Thoreau? 
But after a while, I saw through reading his diaries, which James Benning owns because another artist bought them for him at the FBI auction, the proceeds of which I should say went to the victims fund, uh, people who were hurt or killed um, by Ted Kaczynski's bombs. Um, reading those diaries, at first they are basically just these very simple accounts of his attempts to live on his own in the woods. And they are about solitude in a way that is oddly similar to some of the writings in Walden, um, especially the looking and listening chapter, I think it's chapter four. And he had, Kaczynski had uh, Walden in his cabin. He had a bunch of interesting books in his cabin. But then very quickly, the diaries begin to turn toward anger. And it seems to transparently uh, result from his misanthropy. He's angry that other people are infringing on what he believes to be his autonomy. But what he's really angry about is society. Because what society is, is a compromise, is having to find a way to live in a group with a lot of other people. So when Ted Kaczynski hears snowmobilers in the woods beyond his cabin, he's absolutely furious and thinks that he is morally within his rights to break into the cabin of the snowmobilers, trash all their stuff, set their snowmobiles on fire, and empty out their bottles of vodka, which my husband said, that you know he was really mad if he did that. <laughs> Um, so then he just takes this turn, and the turn sort of forced me to figure out what the essential differences are between the two. And I began transcribing small and what I thought were key and interesting passages of Kaczynski's diaries, and I was struck by how different his writing is than mine. And there's no way I could have emulated that tone. So I just took five very short passages. I think they aren't even a page long. And there's a character in the book, Gordon Hauser, who is reading these Kaczynski diaries. Um, so the inference is that when you read those passages, you're reading what Gordon is reading. And I didn't think of this at the time, but in a way, they began to function for me almost like the way that the postcards, I think, functioned for Sebald, which is that he made up everything around the postcard. The postcard is real, but the narrative that he attaches to it is totally invented. And when you put a real thing in the book, then the narrative has to flow around it, almost like a rock in a stream. So I didn't write Kaczynski's passages, they're real, and I needed to then figure out the way in which the narrative can remain coherent and cohesive and yet find a way to incorporate these components that are from actual life. But it is signaled because you have it in a different font. So you're yeah, able to figure it out. You're not in the total dark. So you, you are able to see that. So do you think you could read another bit? Oh yeah, sure. And then we'll open for questions. Uh, yeah, actually, I was going to read a little part of the, from the character Gordon Hauser's perspective. All right. If his students could learn to think well, to enjoy reading books, some part of them would be uncaged. That was what Gordon Hauser told himself and what he told them, too. But there were days like when one woman walked into the prison classroom and slung boiling sugar water into the face of another woman that he did not believe it. There were days when it seemed like the real meaning of this work he was doing was to destroy his own life by trying to teach people who wanted to burn each other's faces off. The guards made everything more difficult with their hatred of the women and their hostility toward free world staff like Gordon. The guards had been forced to undergo sensitivity training and were furious about it. It's because you cunts cry and demand explanations, they said. Everything with you bitches is why, why, why? They all reminisced about the better times when they had worked in men's facilities where they watched high blood volume stabbings on closed circuit monitors from the safety of the watch office and dealt with prisoners who lived strictly by self-enforced convict codes. Female prisoners argued with the guards and complained, and the guards seemed to find the way the women bickered with them, contested everything, more treacherous than having to subdue riots. No guard wanted to work in a women's prison. Gordon had not understood this until he got to NCWF, 
which he'd chosen because it was commutable from Oakland and because working with women seemed to him less threatening than a prison classroom of men. To be in this place, you gotta be butt ugly, toothless, and fat as pull-apart buns, the yard captain at NCWF had told Gordon his first week there. As the yard captain said it, there were beautiful women passing behind him, porters with mops and brooms pushing trash bins on wheels, some of them thin and with all of their teeth, young things smiling and winking at Gordon as if the joke was on the yard captain who was himself obese. There was one woman who immediately commandeered Gordon's secret attention. Her brooding childlike face and large dark eyes moved him. That was what beauty was, he supposed, when someone's face stirred feelings. She was always reading, her eyes cast down toward pages. More typically, the good-looking ones were overly aware of their beauty. It was something to which they subjected others, a thing they hawked, bartered, and controlled. Hauser had never been up for that kind of charade, in prison or in his other life, the real one, which was becoming less real to him. This girl did not know to use her beauty to manipulate, didn't even know she was beautiful, was Gordon's sense. And when one day he looked at her and kept looking at her, she glanced at him, and before she turned away, he saw fear, or what he thought was fear. He didn't know which unit she lived in. She'd been on yard crew, but they must have switched her because she wasn't out there anymore. A few times, he saw her in the law library, working like every other prisoner on her habeas petition, once in the chapel, praying with a little group, and once in receiving, waiting on a package, and he had felt irrational jealousy that she was being sent a package. By whom? A rival, probably a man. She was too pretty for the package not to be from a man. And if the package was instead from the girl's mother or sister, it meant she was not just Gordon's foundling, but someone's beloved relative, and the connection he imagined she and he might have would be overshadowed by her loyalty to other real people, unknown to him, involved in her life. NCWF stood for Northern California Women's Facility, but the guards called it No Cunt Worth 40K, which made it sound, that's real by the way, which made it sound like these guards all faced a dilemma between their job and easy action with prisoners. In that fantasy, the guard pulled a slot lever by punching his time card and got either dollar signs in triplicate or cherries in a row. And if the guard pulled the lever and the cherries came up, it was for each man to have the strength of character, the good judgment to resist. Skipping ahead a little. Before he realized it, the days of teaching at NCWF were structured by whether Gordon might get a glimpse of this girl he liked wondering about. She averted her eyes when Gordon looked at her. He pondered trying to talk to her. When Gordon made the discovery that she worked in cosmetology training, the chanciness of his days ended. There was a salon in cosmetology where staff could get haircuts for $12. He signed up and made sure to go when she was there. On the momentous day, he sat down, was draped by her right up close in an apron. The touch of her fingers to his scalp riveted him to the barber chair, setting off a chain reaction in his nerves. It could have been the case in the barber chair that day that he was hypersensitive to touch since he had been alone for months. The corner of the comb when the girl drew it along the part of his hair sent a shower of tingles down his head and spine. The touch of this girl's comb produced a feeling that was both terrific longing and something like longing fulfilled. You have nice hair, the girl said. He had utterly normal and unexceptional hair, straight and brown. It was strange to Gordon how sometimes beauty was magnificent and other times it was nothing and did not move him. Her skin was bad and the bad skin made her even prettier. It made her real. She wore the state issue tennis shoes, bubble gums the girls called them, shoes that meant you were indigent because if you had any hustle at all, you'd order brand name sneakers from a mail order catalog. 
She didn't seem to notice or care that she had no adorning marks of catalog supply privilege of outside help. In Gordon's dream of her, the state blue clothes seemed to him almost like hospital scrubs, a nurse's clothes, not prison issue, the uniform of a person who takes care of others, and she did take care. She trimmed his hair, touched his head with her comb. There was something else. She was a black girl, but she spoke to Gordon like a white girl. She lived in the honor dorm and carried a Bible everywhere she went. That he associated her Bible reading with bookishness, maybe it was a confusion, but maybe not. Gordon started going weekly for haircuts. One day, the corpulent pig of a yard captain passed by in his club car as Gordon was walking toward cosmetology. You're going over there pretty often, aren't you, Mr. Hauser? Didn't I just see you getting a haircut last week? The yard captain and the other officers, many of them too fat to walk, reminded Gordon of the obese twins in the Guinness Book of World Records, twins in cowboy hats who rode mopeds to get from the bedroom to the kitchen. Gordon looked at the yard captain with mild contempt and then beyond him to the woman he was there to see as she swept hair from the base of the last barber chair in the cosmetology school, the chair where he would sit, where she would soon be touching his head. Too fat to walk and most of them brought in lunch boxes the size of traveling luggage. They were containers with collapsible handles and wheels too big to lift and carry. What business of the yard captains was it how often Gordon paid $12 to have his head touched by this girl? It was none of his business. He said to the yard captain that he guessed his hair must grow fast. The yard captain seemed satisfied that he had given Gordon a sufficiently hard time, made him a little nervous. The captain rode away in his club car, his huge ass like a sideways letter B in his military pants. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. So it would be fun to talk about the end, but we can't. <laughs> so let's open it for questions. Anybody have any questions? Yes? Where's the mic? Great. <laughs> uh, in your introduction, you uh, mentioned Mama. I've forgotten his name, actually. I always forget his name. Uh, the guy in the Pennsylvania jail. Mumia... Oh, Al Abu Jamal, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's an amazing person, amazingly political, I think really a political prisoner than a prisoner. And I was just wondering what the politics were inside the jail, if there were people... If that was a common thing for people to be highly political and understand or have an explanation of what their situation is in jail. That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, I'm not myself an expert on Mumia's situation, um, but in terms of, it's an interesting kind of category, the political prisoner versus the prisoner prisoner. Um, maybe I'm, I'm more interested in thinking of all prisoners as people um, who have been placed in a cage as a catch-all solution to social problems, rather than I am interested in designating certain people as being in prison who shouldn't be in prison. I mean, even if there are realities to that, I was just discussing uh, with somebody from Penn before this started, uh, the situation of Catalonian politicians who have been, you know, uh, starkly imprisoned by the Spanish government for charges of something like sedition. But in America, most people who go to prison are there because they actually have committed an act of harm. And that doesn't mean to me that those people are necessarily guilty in the sense that they need to go to prison. Um, prison is not rehabilitative in the United States, and that's not a qualitative judgment I'm making. It's a fact. In California, uh, the California Department of Corrections is open about the stated purpose of prison, which is incapacitation. It's about public safety. It's a very unambitious project that is meant to take people out of their communities and off the streets and put them in a place where they can no longer commit acts of harm. So in a certain way, one could argue that everybody in prison is there 
due to causes and reasons that are very complicated, but have political components to them. Um, in California, district attorneys have an enormous amount of power. These are the prosecutors in each county who decide what to charge a defendant with and what kind of sentence to ask for. So even if they have to use sentencing guidelines, they can charge you with a much more severe sentence because the sentencing guidelines for that sentence would mean they could get, for instance, a conviction of something like life without possibility of parole. Those are elected officials. California has 58 district attorneys, uh, excuse me, 68, and 58 of them are Republicans, which is kind of interesting. And part of that is because the Correctional Officers Union in California, which is the most powerful union in the state, uh, which is amazing, more powerful than the teachers union or medical workers union, um, they get involved in local elections and they campaign for DAs who they think are going to push for really serious convictions. And the more people who go into the prison system, the more funding the prison system gets. And it sounds like a kind of paranoid left-wing conspiracy, but I've been to almost every men's prison in California. And the first thing that the public information officer at the prison, who is the interface with the public, the first thing he says to visitors is, prosecutors are our job security. So you see that there is a direct link between um, elections and political influence and how people are being processed through the system and why they're going to prison. Um, so, but your question was more about, I guess, do you see this kind of thing in prison? I mean, I think what Mumia became is something like a jailhouse lawyer. And he knows law very well and is connected to a whole network in men's prisons of jailhouse lawyers. You don't find that quite as much in women's prisons. And I think there are complicated reasons for that. But there isn't this culture of bettering yourself. Whereas in men's prison, people are, you know, they're like, they're reading the Iliad and doing push-ups. In women's prison, they are treated so differently. The men are treated like monsters, if I could be so crude as to generalize, and the women are treated like babies. And they don't have a lot of access even to their own law library, and they don't have access to books. And they are infantilized by the staff in these really humiliating ways. And most of them are people who have experienced extreme trauma and violence in their lives and have PTSD. And um, the psychological environment in prison for them is not very conducive to concentration. And so there aren't a lot of really like cracker jailhouse lawyers in the women's prisons. I wish that there were, but there is Justice Now, the organization that I was mentioning, and there are some people in prison who know human rights law very well. And they also know they've been trained to teach it to other people in women's prison. Mm -hmm. So they know when their rights are being violated. And then that has given some people, I think, a wonderful sense of purpose and something that is inviolable that can't be taken away from them by the guards. Well, I appreciate that question because I'm president of Penn International and Carles Torner, who's executive director, is here. And of course, prison is what we do. And so I'd completely forgotten that I'd brought you this present, which is this prison where I live, which is an anthology of oh, prison right. writing. Oh, right. I know about this book. Great. For Penn. Thank so you, Jennifer. You're welcome. <laughs> there are, that's all an anthology of, you know, an introduction by Brodsky and, you know, political uh, freedom of expression cases. So any other questions? Yes. Um, thank you very much. That was very illuminating, both the readings and the accounts you've given. And, and obviously you have got um, a political view. I guess you wouldn't have embarked on the project and you wouldn't have written it. So what hope do you see for the future, right? 20 years, 30 years, is it going to be different or is it going to be worse? And you're obviously trying to tell us how bad it is, but is it actually going to get better? Well, not to be a stickler, but I, I don't think I am actually, I don't, fiction for me is not really a political project. I mean, I think that when you write fiction, you create characters, um, and they are shaped by historical forces, just like we are. So you can't really absent the politics completely from fiction. But I think that art, 
it, it has a special place in society, and I, I don't think that it can be both polemical and successful. And so for me, I, wasn't, I didn't have strong opinions when I was writing this book. I had questions, and I had to ask myself some really stark questions that I don't think have easy answers about, like, I don't know what justice is anymore. Because um, the term comes up a lot, and you can read you know, um, great legal philosophers and think about justice. But when I see proceedings in a legal setting, I'm not sure how justice is being enacted. Um, when, like, for instance, you know, when harm occurs, um, there really is no way to make good on real harm. You cannot resuscitate a dead person. Um, you cannot fix the trauma that one person has sustained by punishing and incarcerating another person. Um, if you go down that road, it can be endless. I mean, there is this idea in you know <clears throat> the Old Testament, the, the uh, um, lex talionis, that it's an eye for an eye, right? And that's supposed to be like some measure of justice. But then there are a lot of scholars who think that the or original meaning of that was only one eye for an eye and was limiting retribution. So when I wrote the book, I was just trying to think into these questions and ruminate to the best of my own abilities. And I didn't know um, what the solution was. I didn't even know necessarily what the problem was because I was, you know, forming quite intensive friendships with people in prison who have all committed really serious acts of harm. Um, and so you can't, you, there's a kind of perception that there are like, I mean, maybe there isn't this perception, but there's sometimes a feeling that they're just like roving vans in America that are pulling in people of color and putting them into prison. And the process of ending up in prison is so much longer and more complicated and meandering than that. Um, and most people in prison have done something to get there. It seems to me that it's an unfortunate aspect of bourgeois society. If you have private property, you're going to have a criminalized sector of the population. And the way the economy has changed from manufacturing to finance capital in California and in the United States broadly, you have more people from the lower reaches of society who are basically excluded from the economy. And it is from that layer that people end up in prison. So there isn't a direct relationship. If you're poor, you'll go to prison. But there isn't really anyone in prison who didn't come from a poor family. Um, in terms of hope and how that's gonna change, I don't know necessarily. I mean, there are people who've devoted their lives to the movement of prison abolition, which was started more or less by Angela Davis uh, and a woman named Ruth Wilson Gilmore in California. And I see that that movement has become more widespread. I'm trying to write something about it right now myself. Um, and it's interesting to see that people are thinking of such a long-term radical project that they know will not come to fruition in their own lifetimes. And to think in terms of segments of time like that, like the long durée, they call it, is abstract to me, but I'm open to it. And other people have consigned themselves to it as if they don't have any other choice. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. Two more questions. So, okay. Hi. Um, this is more from the writing aspect. It seems like you did a lot of research, and I was curious if you came to a point and said, I can write now, or if you wrote, researched, wrote, research. Oh, well, maybe it's a semantical issue, but I, I never use the term research for okay, some sorry. reason. No, no, it's perfectly <laughs> fine. Everyone asks that. I think it's because. Um, Writing this book, which is, you know, it's about California, and I'm from California, I live there. It was a more organic relationship with things that interest me than things that I would go out of my way to learn about in order to put them in a book. So I decided to kind of restructure my life so that I could have daily interaction with people serving life sentences. And there are many blockades to that, and I was interested in trying to surpass those blockades and make my life um, incorporate people in it that the state has placed far afield. 
Um, and so I was going to do that separate from the book. I, but I, I would say I'm, more inv I'm much more involved with people in prison now than I was when I was writing the book. And that's largely because I have space. I have time, but I also have psychological space for them in a way that um, I didn't, when I was really deep into writing the book, um, I needed to spend a lot of time alone. And the answers that I needed to find in order to figure out what happens in the narrative, um, I couldn't find by talking to other people. It was a very personal, deep engagement, and you build a parallel universe to this one and fill it with things that are the result of understanding but are not in this one-to-one -one relationship. And I didn't really want my conversations with people to leak into the book. The book has to have its own you know, organic unity. But I did have friends from prison. I have one friend who made me these incredibly elaborate maps of the prisons, and I had those on the walls of my office so that I could always look, but maybe the map itself is neutral. So over the map can be projected my whole imagined world and not the stories from people I know. So there was one more. One more question, right here in front. Um, this is a question about a character in the novel um, who is a corrupt cop. Yeah. I think, is his name Doc? Yeah. Yeah. Who I found particularly despicable. And that um, passage um, of his narration I found really, really hard to, to read. Can you tell me the function of that character within your novel? Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I mean... If I could reduce what characters do to a sort of statement sentence, I think I would render them unnecessary. It's always a bit more complicated and ambiguous for me. But I could tell you what inspired that character. Um, I was in a men's prison in California uh, uh, called Sacramento State. It's across the street from Old Folsom, which is the prison where Johnny Cash famously gave that concert. Um, and I, I was there kind of undercover with a group of young criminology students who were basically being taken on a job fair tour to end up getting jobs and corrections in California. Um, and so we had really unusual access. We were allowed to wander around on prison yards. You know, I was on a prison yard when a riot started. It was like no big deal. I mean, it was a big deal, but it was no big deal in the sense that we were actually just allowed to walk off the yard and people were throwing garbage cans. Um, I was allowed to go into people's cells and talk to them because the prison administration felt that they were with their own kind. It wasn't a critical audience of, you know, like liberal killer lovers, which is what guards would think of somebody like me. But uh, so, that, so I went into this guy's cell and I was talking to him and he was a former uh, Los Angeles Police Department detective who'd worked for the Hollenbeck Division, which is what patrol, they patrol Skid Row. And he started telling me he was serving life without possibility of parole. That means that he will never go up for parole and is meant to die in the prison and leave in a body bag. Um, and I was in his tiny cell with him, which he shares with another guy. And he was on the sensitive needs yards, which is where they put people who will just be immediately murdered on a regular general population yard, whether they have child molestation charges or are a cop or have been worrying a gang and then debriefed, um, meaning they left the gang. And all the people on sensitive yard needs yards hate the other people on sensitive yards because if you're there you've done something wrong and so he was complaining to me about having to be on a sensitive yard he can't even go on the sensitive yard because he'll be killed immediately and everybody knows he's a cop so he stays in his cell so i'm talking to a man whose face has not seen the light of day in decades and he started telling me about um extrajudicial killings that he committed on the job as a Los Angeles detective. And it only went on for about five minutes, but it was very intense for me because I felt like his essence went into me and I didn't know what to do with that material. And even as the things he said were disturbing, I also felt his humanity. He was a person who'd been sentenced to live inside a concrete box for the rest of his life. And his photos were on the walls behind him. He had photographs of two Harley Davidsons. And I assumed those were from his glory days when he was a cop, you know. But what do they mean now? Uh, it was just very confusing, overwhelming, and rich experience. And by rich, I mean laden with information. 
And I felt that he was a part of the story, too. So um, I just went home and started writing from his perspective. Okay, well, th thank you very much, everybody. And as I said when we opened, that uh, Rachel will be signing books. Is it here? Right across. Right yeah. across. Thanks for coming. Yeah. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.